Well, good morning. When Pastor Dave asked me to preach a couple of weeks ago, it didn't take me very long to sit and settle on where I wanted to be in the Word of God with you this morning. I've had this message that's been kindling in my heart. This past week it caught on fire and it started to burn. And right now it's raging, it is blazing inside of me and I've got to spread it to you. Now don't panic, you're not going to get the full forest fire today. I'm not going to burn the place down. But I am going to strike a match and hand it to you, and I'm going to ask the Lord to do with it whatever He wills. So whether you're here, you're joining us in the venue or online, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to begin in verse 27 by asking and answering this most crucial question, what do we have in Christ? What do we have in Christ? you're taking notes, let's just cut to the chase and begin right here. Number one, it is in Christ that we have Scripture's priority. Scripture's priority. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of gathering with the 12th graders in a life group. I was going to teach a session on the overview of Scripture, the priority of Scripture. When I gathered with about 15 or 20 12th graders, I handed each of them a piece of a puzzle. Now the pieces of this puzzle came from a box of 500 pieces. I did not let them see the cover of the box, so they had no idea what the puzzle was. I did, however, ask them to guess what they thought the puzzle was simply by looking at the piece that was in their hand. You realize not one person got it. Neither would we. I didn't even come close. Because the reality is we too often do this with the Word of God. We'll extract a scripture out and we'll look at the one piece of scripture without looking at the entirety of the whole puzzle of God's Word. And you realize that when we begin to connect the pieces of scripture together one by one and we step back and we look at the entirety of the puzzle of God's Word, we have the priority of scripture because the puzzle is Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment. God inspired over 40 different authors to write in a couple of languages in various locations and cultures over a span of 1,500 years into two parts, old and new, 66 books, yet it tells one unifying story and theme on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So today we are going to connect some pieces of the puzzle together from the Old Testament that are going to take us to the cross to see the person and work of Jesus Christ. And each one are going to help us answer this question, what do we have in Christ? Luke 24, 27 will help us get to these places. So very briefly, let's stand together in the honor of the reading of the Word of God wherever you may be this morning. Luke writes to us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So here's the context. Jesus Christ has died upon the cross for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and He has risen from the grave, and He is beginning to make appearances to the people. This is the first recorded one that we see in the gospel according to Luke, and it's to two disciples. One is unnamed. However, if you look at verse 18, you see the other is named Cleopas. But as we go along, you'll notice in verse 16, Christ does not reveal to them who He is yet. Later He will. 
Now, don't let that alarm you. Our Lord Jesus has the prerogative to reveal and to conceal himself whenever, wherever, however, and to whomever he pleases. Many preachers today will take the parables and use them as a teaching tool or as an example, but that was not the primary reason Jesus told parables. He told parables to conceal and reveal truth. And so first we see a concealing of it, but in a moment you'll see a revealing of it at the end of this story. Now it's significant in verse 13 because these disciples are walking to a village called Emmaus and it tells us that it's seven miles. Now, if you're a walker or a runner, you know that a leisurely stroll for seven miles will take you about two hours. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because for two hours, look back at verse 27 again. Here is what Christ did with these disciples. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So for two hours, the master is giving a master class to these two disciples about where he is found throughout all of the scriptures. They have the Son of God literally preaching the Word of God to them as they walked. Oh, if I could get into a time machine, the places I would go, the preachers that I would hear. In fact, I listened to a recording of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on the way into church this morning, but I got to tell you, I would get in that time machine and I would go back to the Westminster Chapel and hear Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preach live. I'd go back even further to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and listen to Charles Spurgeon. I'd go back even further than that to Mars Hill and listen to Paul school the Athenian philosophers. But if I could go anywhere, just anywhere for a moment, at this time, this is where I would go just a few feet back from these three walking to Emmaus in earshot, listening to Jesus exposit the Old Testament scriptures about himself to these two, watching him put the pieces of the puzzle together of scripture to show that he is the puzzle. He is scripture's priority. He tells us so in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Listen to this. It is they that bear witness about me. See, scripture's priority is Jesus. And the priority of scripture is to point us to him because he is the one who can. And if you will come, he will save you. See, the power in the scriptures is not found in us. It is found in the author of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. You always have people today clamoring and claiming moves of the Holy Spirit. I want a move of the Holy Spirit, but we must define our terms and know what we mean when we say that he is going to move. And people will say, oh, if there's not miracles or healings or tongues or prophecies or prosperity, there's no moving of the Holy Spirit. That's not true. That's an unhealthy emphasis upon the work of the Holy Spirit and a misperception of it as well. Listen to what John chapter 15 verse 26 tells us. Christ says the Spirit of God is going to come. He's going to come in my place and he has. Listen to what he'll do. One of his primary foundational ministries is this, to bear witness about Christ. See, if there is no pointing to the person and work of Christ, we have no work or movement of the Holy Spirit. So get this, the priority is the Spirit of God and the Scriptures from God pointing us to the person and work of Christ. Listen to the first part of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. I do have to warn you. You've already probably seen the one ditch that I've alluded to. Scripture is not about us. We're not Moses. We're not David. It is about Jesus. And so we're not the hero of the story. Every time the hero of the story is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So stop reading ourselves into the Bible when we're not there. But the ditch on the other side of the road is this. Jesus is not in every verse, story, or passage in the Bible. So we can't try to read him into a place that he's not there. But if we go back to our puzzle, if you look at a puzzle, the main picture of the puzzle may not always spread out on every piece of the puzzle, but every piece of the puzzle will connect together to make the main picture. The same is true with Scripture. Even though Jesus is not in every verse, story, or passage, you can begin to connect every story, verse, and passage together, and it will lead us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is Scripture's priority. So what does that mean for you? What do you have in Christ because of that? Here's what you have, the voice of God in your life. Oh, not some mystical voice that you can't understand or interpret or wonder if you heard. We have the entirety of the voice of God given to us in the bounds of Scripture. You don't have to wonder if Jesus said or what He said. He has already said it. And we need this more than ever because the world that we live in is full of lies, fraud, deceit, deception. I mean, what are you going to do? Believe the media? Trust a politician? No, that is shaky, shifty ground. We have the completed Word of God that we can rest on, and in it is Scripture's priority, Jesus Christ. And so since we have the person in the pages of the truth, Oh, we have something sturdy to stand on, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have Scripture's priority if you are in Jesus Christ. As we move through this morning, we don't know all that Jesus told the disciples on this journey to Emmaus for these two hours, for these seven miles. But I can't help but wonder, did Jesus tell them, number two, that it is in Him, in Christ, that we have the Savior promised? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I wonder if Jesus took these disciples just beyond the Old Testament and actually back into eternity past. I love it when children ask me Bible questions. I don't always have the answer, but I'll go dig and try to find it if I don't know it. And one question that they often ask me is, Pastor Brad, who created God? And of course, the answer to that is no one. And I tell them, if someone created God, someone would have to create the someone that created God, and then someone would have to create the someone that created the someone and created God. I can go all the way up to Sunday school doing that if you need me to. It has to start at one person, and the person is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we often wonder if no one's created God, if He has existed eternally, what was He doing before He made anything and everything? We don't totally know the answer to that. The Bible doesn't tell us. We're not privy to that information. But there is one thing that the Bible clues us into that the Lord did in eternity past. It was then that redemption was established. It was then that God the Father decreed to send God the Son into the world. It was then that Jesus willingly laid down His life to go to the cross. It was then that God determined that He would gift Jesus, His Son, with the reward of His obedience of all the redeemed, all those who would ever believe in Him. So what does this mean if you're in Christ? Well, here's what it means. It means that we have a God who doesn't sleep or slumber. You can't sneak up on God and catch Him by surprise. He has no do-overs. He has no plan B, C, or D. Table Talk Magazine referenced this point, and it says this, His plan A is everlasting to everlasting. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is not an afterthought. It was established before God made a thing. Ephesians chapter 1, the first part of verse 4 says this, even as He chose us in Him. 
Now, when did he do this? Paul tells us before the foundation of the world. The point is this, the salvation of our souls was on the mind of God before he made a thing. In Revelation 13, 8, it talks about Jesus who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was crucified in eternity past. No, what that means is God declared it, decreed it to be so. And since God said it was so, it was as good as done. See, the world's going to break every single promise to you, but not our God. It is in Christ that we have this promises made to us and promises kept for us. He's not just a promise keeper, he is the promise keeper. And before you ever sin, God had already established that promise of a savior to come and pay the penalty of your sin and bring you to himself as a reward for the son. It's God's world, it's his rules, what he says goes, and what he says is I promise I will send a savior, and he did. Next, I can't help but wonder if Christ didn't take these two disciples from eternity past and directly into the Garden of Eden. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 with me, and we'll see number 3. In Christ, we have Satan pulverized. Satan pulverized. Now, a lot of you will not know this about me because I don't do this much anymore, but I'm a pretty prolific practical joker. I can do jokes to you that will make you laugh, cry or leave you shuddering in fear. It's just a matter of which one you want or what you've done to me that you have coming back to you. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I was walking through the Dollar Tree shortly after my wife and Katie got married. And that was back when things were still a dollar. And I looked on the shelf and there was this rubber snake. And at first glance, it looked real. So I thought, this is a lot of fun for a dollar. So I bought it and took it home and I would put it in obscure places and I would hear her scream and shriek because she ran into some black rubber snake sitting on the sidewalk or near the washer or in the closet. But one day the ultimate plan came to fruition. I went into the bathroom and I put it in the toilet and I shut the lid. <laughs> now she should have known something was up because when was the last time a man actually shut the lid to the toilet? <laughs> She's not going to the bathroom. I'm encouraging her. Hey, you want a glass of water, soda, juice? Can I get you something? Well, finally she does, and I hear that toilet seat lift, and then I hear this blood-curdling scream fill the house. And you realize, I don't have that snake anymore. It's gone. She destroyed it. And after 20 years of marriage, she still owes me a rubber snake. But all that to say, it's here in the garden that we're actually going to see another snake that is destroyed. We're going to see Satan pulverized. After Adam and Eve sinned, here's what happens. The Savior that was promised, he is beginning to be revealed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, this is talking about Jesus, will crush your head. And then God says to Satan here, you will strike his hill. Theologians call this the proto-euangelion. And what that means is first gospel. You often think, well, the gospel doesn't show up till the gospels. Oh, no, 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 no. The gospel has shown up in eternity past, and it's showing up just days after creation. And immediately after the fall of man, God begins to give us an introduction to the gospel. We have the first gospel, the promise. And one of the promises that come with this Savior is this, he will pulverize Satan. He will crush him. See, it was on the cross that Christ died. 
He suffered physically, but he also had the wrath of God poured out upon him in our places. It was a dark day, literally and physically. And I'm sure many that day had wondered, is this it? Is this the promised Messiah, the Christ? It's over? Did darkness, death, hell, and Satan, the devil, actually win? Oh, but three days later, we'll celebrate it Sunday. The tomb was open, the stone was rolled away, and our Christ stepped out of there victorious, and he crushed, pulverized the head of Satan. It says here he struck his heel because just for a moment Christ suffered, but three days later he was victorious to defeat Satan, death, and hell. Romans 16.20 says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We have a serpent-crushing, serpent-pulverizing, serpent-destroying Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. And you realize the final pulverizing, the final punishment, the final crushing and destroying of Him is coming. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil, that is Satan, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, rest assured, my friends, it is because of what Christ has done on the cross, Satan will be pulverized ultimately, completely, and finally. And it is in Christ. It is because of him we have this victory. We as believers will not be defeated. We might lose a battle, but we will not lose the war. There will be no more death, pain, wars, hatred, sickness, tears, angst. It will all be gone. You have already won. Do you know why? Because Christ has won it for you. It's a done deal. Amen. Since we're in the garden, let's stay here just for a moment. I wonder if Jesus told these disciples, number four, that in him we have the sinless proxy Turn to Romans chapter 5 into the New Testament and see this with me for a moment. Maybe Christ took the time to explain to these disciples that there are actually two Adams that are listed in the Bible. The first Adam that comes to our mind is the one that is here in the garden, the one who disobeyed the Lord's command by eating of the tree that he ought not to have eaten. And as a result, sin entered the world and Adam plunged humanity into sin. And the reason being is he was our representative in the garden. Another word is that he was our proxy in the garden, acting on our behalf. And he was our sinful proxy in the garden. And it was literally a domino effect. When Adam sinned, that first domino, he fell. We have all fallen with him. And so we are fallen sinners by nature and by choice. If you ever wonder, are people really born into sin? Just don't give a two-year-old what he or she wants and watch what happens. But the good news is, there's not just one Adam. The New Testament tells us that there is a last Adam. His name is Jesus Christ, and he was not our sinful proxy in the garden. No, 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 no. He was our sinless proxy upon the cross. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. There is a lot in this chapter, but I want to highlight these two verses. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's Christ. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam. 
So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's Christ. So we see here in Romans 5, Paul is like a tennis match, one side to the next, one side to the next. Takes it over to Adam, takes it back to Christ. Takes it to Adam, takes it to Christ. And here's what we see in this comparison. It is Adam that brought disobedience, but Christ, our sinless proxy, brought obedience. It was Adam that brought death, but it is Christ that brought life. It was Adam that brought condemnation, but it is Christ that brought justification. Can I ask you today, who is representing you in the garden? If there was a family reunion, you're going to one of two parties. Adam's or Christ. You're in the race of Adam or you are in the race of Christ. Adam is your sinful proxy in the garden or Christ was your sinless proxy upon the cross. Can I tell you, don't trust for a moment any good work, self-righteousness, religiosity that you think that you can find in yourself that will make you right with God. Isaiah is clear in Isaiah 64, 6, your good works, my good works are as filthy Rags. The very best about us are disgusting before the Lord. But the good news is this. If you are resting upon your sinless proxy, Jesus Christ upon the cross, here's what you have. You have his righteousness added to your account. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin of Adam and yourself. He sees the righteousness of Christ wrapped around you. It's called imputation. Are you imputed, credited with Adam's sin or with Christ's righteousness? As we continue through, I'm almost certain Christ would have taken these disciples to Exodus chapter 12. Turn there with me, and we're going to see number five, that it is in Christ we have the sacrifice provided. The sacrifice provided. When I was about 12 years old, my buddies down the road, they were gone. Nobody in the house wanted to come out with me and play ball. No, oh, so sad. So I went out in the yard, and I was tossing the baseball up and catching it with my glove. That gets really boring after a while. So I went in the house, and I found this high-powered slingshot that for some reason I had that I had no business having. I found a rock that was just a little larger than a marble, and I never claimed to be the smartest guy in the world, and you're going to hear why here in just a moment. But I took this glove, and I put it under my arm, and I pulled the slingshot back with this rock, and I would shoot it in the air, drop the slingshot, slide the glove on, and catch the rock. Now, as I caught the rock, when that rock hit my glove, it was like a 100-mile-an-hour fastball hitting my mitt. I would shoot it at an angle, and I would run and dive and catch it and pop up. And the imaginary fans that filled the yard that day, I could just hear them chanting my name. Well, if you know anything about baseball, there's routine pop flies where it just pops up in the air. Any infielder can snag it. And so that's what I did. I just pop it up and I'm waiting and praise be to God, I didn't shoot it very high because I miscalculated about a quarter of an inch and that's all it took. And that rock hit me right in the forehead. Just like David slinging the stone at Goliath and as Goliath fell, I fell. And parents, you'll appreciate this. I didn't cry, I didn't scream. I was good until all of a sudden my head began gushing blood and I felt it pouring down my face and I wiped my forehead and looked and my hands were covered with blood. The tears and screaming began to come. So I sprinted towards the house and I was in such a panic as blood was gushing from my head. And I always heard as a kid growing up, if you get cut in the head, you bleed like a stuck hog. I've never seen a stuck hog bleed, but it was anything like I bled. They bleed a lot when they are stuck. <laughs> I don't know if the door was locked. I don't know if it was just such a panic. I couldn't get the door open. So I start banging on the door, wiping head 
blood from my head banging on the door. Finally, someone opens it, I get cleaned up, I go back outside, get my slingshot, get my baseball, get my glove. I left the rock out there, by the way, if you were wondering. And as I'm headed back to the house, I stop and realize I gotta clean that door. It is stained with blood. I share that because it reminds me of a story that we find here in Exodus 12 about bloody doors. See, Exodus chapter 1 through 12 gives this historical narrative, this account of Israel being enslaved to the nation of Egypt. And the Lord is beginning to send plagues upon Pharaoh to break him. You might remember the stories of darkness and boils and frogs and flies and various others. And these plagues, they were designed to do a couple of things, glorify God and show God's victory over the gods of Egypt. But Pharaoh would harden his heart against the work of the Lord. Now, don't let this alarm you, but the scripture is very clear. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh as well. How do you reconcile that? Well, as you think about this, since Pharaoh was so resistant to the Lord's work, it was finally as if God took his work off of Pharaoh and allowed his heart to go ahead and get hard. If I were teaching children this morning, I would say it was like concrete. As long as you stir concrete, it's pliable, it's moldable, it's shapeable. But what happens when you stop stirring concrete? It hardens up. And the same thing, if you this morning are resisting the work of the Lord in your life, Eventually, he's going to stop stirring your heart, and he's going to allow your heart to go on and get hard. And I would urge you, resist you. I would urge you, if you are resisting the work of the Lord this morning, to stop before it's too late, before he pulls his hands off of you. We have all seen people with a hard heart, and it is a sad condition to find ourselves in. But it was in that final plague, the 10th plague, that brings us to Exodus chapter 12. Look for just a portion of this into verses 21 through 23. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts that the, uh, with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. See, the Lord is about to execute judgment upon Egypt. And it's just a note for us, our Lord is not one to be trifled with. He will bring justice in his time. But as we look at this, he tells them, put the blood of the lamb on your door. Have a bloody door. And when the destroyer passes over, all the firstborn in your house will live. But when the destroyer passes over, if you do not have a bloody door, the blood of the lamb, you will die. Your firstborn will perish. So as we begin to see here, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, a few verses back tells us, your lamb shall be without blemish. Do you see the connection yet? Christ in the New Testament is the fulfillment of this. He is our Passover lamb. The second part of 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. John 1, 29 says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was the only one qualified and worthy to die for your sins. He was the sinless sacrifice provided. The point is, death is literally going to pass over us all one day. And on that day, we must not have the blood of a lamb. We must have the blood of the lamb upon our hearts. 
We don't need blood-soaked doors. We need blood-stained hearts with the precious blood of Jesus Christ applied to us. Have you received that provided sacrifice that God has given through His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins? If so, you don't have to fear death. I've noticed the last couple of years, Christians are way too scared to die. We don't need to be reckless. I mean, we need to be mindful and we need to use the minds and reasoning that God has given us. But we have stepped back in passivity and fear and the world that is watching, they have seen us living out a faith that is absolutely feeble and unstable. And we must stand and go, I am okay with going to be with the Lord when he calls my number because as a believer in Christ, if you've received this provided sacrifice for you through Jesus Christ, here's what death is for you. It's an upgrade. It's a promotion. It's graduation into glory. It's a raise. It's a reward. And goodness gracious, Jesus Christ has made the way for us that death is our victory. Turn to Numbers chapter 21, one book over. Let's go there together and we're going to see number six, that it's in Christ we have the substitute punished. The substitute punished. Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, the story goes this way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Here's what's happening here. Israel has sinned against God. They have sinned against Moses. And God sends fiery serpents into the camp to bite them, and they are dying. Again, God is not to be trifled with. He will execute justice as he wills. So God tells Moses, here's the solution. Take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and anyone that is bitten by one of these fiery serpents, when they look at it, what will happen? They will live. Now, this may not seem significant until we fast forward a couple thousand years into the New Testament. John chapter 3 tells us that a man named Nicodemus came to visit Jesus. And that hallmark verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, oh, as beautiful as that is, don't let that overshadow the rest of John 3. Verses 14 and 15 says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. We don't look at a serpent on a pole, do we? We look to a Savior that was crucified upon the cross. God punished Jesus as if He lived your life. Think about this for a moment. What is your worst sin? Whatever just came into your head, I promise you have committed way worse sins, and so have I. But the point is, whatever that worst sin that came into your head was, God punished Jesus as if he committed that sin. We are sick with sin. We have been bitten with sin. And the only cure, antivenom, is for us to put our eyes upon the punished substitute on the cross in our place, Jesus Christ. I've been telling you what you have in Christ. Let me tell you something that if you're in Christ that you don't have. You don't have one drop of God's wrath waiting on you. Christ has drank every bit of it up. He has lapped it 
all up. It is gone because he said on the cross that day, it is finished. This brings us to our last piece of the puzzle this morning. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. I bet Christ told the disciples something to this effect, that it is in him, it is in Christ that we have salvation's path, salvation's path. Katie and I bought a house a number of years ago. We bought this house, the house next to us was empty. A couple of months later, someone bought it, so we had new neighbors. Well, I looked out the window one day because I could hear something and I noticed that my new neighbor and his friend were trying to unload this stand-up piano from the back of a truck. I have no idea how they got it up there, but I thought I will be a good neighbor, go over and offer my services. So I walked over there and my neighbor's in the truck and he's trying to get this piano unstrapped and he's having a really hard time. I grew up kind of in the backwoods and I've heard some words, but this guy was sharing some words this day in the back of that truck that I'd never heard before. So me and his friend were standing on the ground, we're visiting, and so his friend looks at me and he says, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a minister. And all of a sudden, it got very quiet in the back of that truck. He stopped wrestling with the piano and the strap, and he raised up from behind it, and he looked at me and he said, I am so sorry. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, I I didn't mean to offend you. I said, I've I've heard those things before. It's okay. He said, if you could, the next time you talk to God, could you tell him that that I'm sorry? (laughs) And there is a misperception as we laugh about that, but millions of people all over this planet think that they have to go through some person to get to God. They think that they have to take their request through a man to get to God. Let me tell you, in the Christian faith, there are no haves and have-nots. It is through Jesus Christ that we have a direct line to the Father because He has paved salvation's path. It's available to everyone who will believe through Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider this, in the Old Testament, Israel was used to a man going to the Lord on their behalf. He was the high priest. And a priority for this high priest was the Day of Atonement. You can read more about that in Leviticus 16. But the short of it is he would have to go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil of the temple, the holy place. He would make sacrifice for himself and for the people. But you realize today we don't need that. I don't need a priest to go anywhere for me or to say anything for me. I don't need someone to go on my behalf before God because that's been done. Christ has paved that path for salvation and it is through him that I get there. Because the New Testament tells us who the ultimate high priest is, Jesus Christ. Listen to what happened to that veil that separated that holy of holies from the rest of the temple. Matthew 27, verse 51, when Jesus died on the cross, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil that separated from the people of God, Christ's death, his flesh was torn like the veil and he ripped it down so that in through him we have salvation's path to God. Listen to Hebrews 10, look at verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands at his service daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Let's pause right there for a moment. Those Old Testament sacrifices never saved anyone. They were looking forward to the promise of what God would accomplish in the cross. Do you know we have it better than they do? Because we get to look back at what he has accomplished on the cross. And we have the complete revelation of the word of God to tell us about it. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
what millions of gallons of blood over thousands of years spilled upon that altar offer could not alter, could not accomplish what Christ accomplished one Friday afternoon at Calvary. I would encourage you this week sometime to set an alarm, set a reminder for 3 p.m. on Friday. And when that goes off, would you just stop and consider what Christ accomplished that Friday, that good Friday at Calvary's cross for you and for me? The weight, the gravitas of that moment that he was punished for us, that he paved salvation's way. Let me just tell you, there's no other way to get to God except through Jesus Christ. And if you're trying some other way to get there, it's a dead-end road. If you're in Christ, here's what you have. Access to the Holy of Holies. The veil has been torn. It would almost be as if you were in the Holy of Holies and someone came up to you and tapped you on the shoulder and said, what are you doing here? How did you get in here? And Christ comes up behind you and puts his loving arm around you and says, he's with me. She's with me. Oh, if I had more time this morning, I'd point you to some other Old Testament types and shadows. I'd tell you about the scapegoat that they put metaphorically and symbolically the sins of Israel on, and they sent him out of the cap. Christ removes our sins from us. Expiation. He takes them away. I tell you about Moses, who was called to free the children of Israel from Egyptian slavery, and how Christ has been called to free us from the slavery of sin. And Hebrews is clear, Jesus is the better Moses. I tell you about the hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled from the Old Testament in Christ. I tell you many of the things that the Bible calls him, but here are just a few. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the creator, the word, the good shepherd, the door, the bread of life, Emmanuel, the true vine, the head of the church, the author and finisher of our faith, the horn of salvation, the faithful witness, the cornerstone, the prince of peace, the king of kings, the mighty Lord. He is the way, the truth, the life, the man of sorrows, the root of David. He is the redeemer, the resurrection and the life, and the great I am. As we wrap up this morning, at the end of that account with Christ and the disciples walking to Emmaus, the very end in Luke 24, verses 31 and 32, it says that their eyes were open and they recognized him. Can I ask you this morning, have your eyes been open to recognize the person and work of Jesus Christ upon the cross? I pray that it has. It also says in verse 32 there that their hearts burned as Christ walked with them and explained the Old Testament scriptures to them. Have your, heart been, has your heart's been burning this morning, the scriptures work in your life. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving through area of Little Rock and I pulled up to this stop sign. And this guy pulled up next to me and he rolled the window down. So I rolled my window down. I said, what can I do for you? He said, young man, do you know where you're going? And I was a little dumbfounded at first. I should have picked up on the clues, but I looked ahead to make sure there wasn't anything obstructing the road. And I looked back at him. I said, yes, sir. I'm in this neighborhood all the time. I know right where I'm at. Do you need some help? He goes, no, 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 no. Young man, you didn't understand what I just asked you. Do you know where you're going when you die? So here I am at this stop sign gospel presentation, and I look at him and I said, I do, but it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that I'm getting there. And he didn't even respond. He smiled real big. He drove off, rolled down his other window, began to pump his fist, honk his horn, and drove away. I can tell you, I was, my heart was so warmed by that stop sign gospel presentation. But I want to ask you the same question that he asked me. Do you know where you're going? Because you're not getting there by yourself. 
Christ has paved the way and you must go with him. I would extend that and I would ask you, do you really know what you have in Christ? We just scratched the surface of that this morning. But if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, do you know what you could have if you would only come? Here in the worship center venue, joining us online, I want to invite you just to bow where you're at. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and reflect upon what the Lord has been doing through His Scriptures in our lives, in our church this morning. I first want to speak to those in the room who know the Lord. If you know Christ, and if what I have said is true, and let me tell you, it is, it is all true, it changes everything. The work of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. And we have people today who are trying to fix societal ills with all the wrong tools. It is like they're trying to kill a fly buzzing around their house with a sledgehammer. It's not going to work. They're going to tear the place down. And people are tearing their lives apart, trying to apply worldly tools to spiritual problems. Do you know what the tool is? It's the gospel. It is sufficient. Will you just stop today and trust what you have been given in Christ if you are indeed in Him? Another thing I would like to encourage you with this morning, if you're in Christ, you're not going to hell. Think about that for a moment. You are not going to hell. There's no wrath for you. There's no more punishment for you. Christ has taken it all. Just right where you're at with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, don't say it audibly, but if you're in Christ, just mouth that to yourself. I am not going to hell. And when Satan comes in and begins to tempt you to doubt the reality of the sufficiency of the gospel that Christ has applied to you, preach this all-sufficient gospel to yourself, and it will remind you that you're not going to hell. And if the gospel's been that good to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, who might you share it with today and this week as we move into Easter Sunday? We take a moment. If you don't know Christ this morning, if what I've said is true, and it is, it changes everything for you as well. Candidly speaking, and I'm saying this out of love, this is your best life now. Without Christ, it will get no better than this moment because you have waiting on you what we all deserve, a very real, literal place called hell. But you're here today by God's providence because He is patient and kind and loving and forbearing, and He is giving you opportunity to come to Him, to experience all that you could have in Christ. At the conclusion of the service today in the venue, it's going to be people around the room, staff that you can visit with if you have questions. You need somebody to pray with you. Here, Pastor Dave will be available on the front pew. There will be pastors at our next step area in the lobby. How do you need to respond to the Spirit's work through His Scripture in your life today?